beginning at verse 10 and 11, and then going to verse 15 and 20. Matthew, Matthew 15, verses 10 and 11, and then 15 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Verse 15. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as you know, if you have been here in the last few weeks, we are in a series of messages where we are considering the gospel from a number of different angles. In the last three weeks, we have seen that sin makes us guilty, that it kills, that it enslaves, and that what God has done for us in Christ is he has justified us so that he now reckons us innocent. He has made us alive in Christ, and he has set us free in Christ. Next week, we're going to see the family angle of the gospel and see that sin estranges us from God, and God in Christ has reconciled us to himself. But today we're going to consider the fact that sin pollutes, makes the heart dirty and stained. Not the kind of stain that Shout and Mr. Clean can remove. It's, it's the bottle of black ink poured out on white satin. The kind of stain about which we would say that will never come out. I keep going to the book of Genesis each week because that is where the story of sin begins. Adam and Eve, faced with a choice, chose not to trust God, but to trust their own judgment. And so they disobeyed God. And thus they opened the door to sin, and sin kicked the door down and moved in, and it has resided in the human heart ever since. And like the slob that it is, it has messed the place up. It's made it dirty, made it filthy. This is how the Word of God describes the human heart afterward. And I keep coming back to this verse, too, because it shows the absolute power of sin over people. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, verse 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, there would be judgment every day unless the Lord said, I will not judge. Now, is the heart that bad? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Now, in our day, of course, we have our own conception of what dirty 
means. It's a spaghetti stain on your shirt. It's the dirt on your car after driving down a slushy road. It's the black on your fingers after you've tinkered under the hood. But what we call dirty isn't really dirty. When you stain your shirt, 99% of the shirt is still white. No matter how dirty the car, you can still tell what color it is. The heart made dirty by sin is not that kind of dirty. A few weeks ago, my wife and I watched the movie Slumdog Millionaire, which is a movie some of you certainly have seen. In a scene early in the movie, the boy's hero is approaching in a helicopter, and the boy wants nothing more than to go see his hero and get his autograph. But there is an obstacle. His brother has locked him in the outhouse. And the boy pounds on the door, doesn't open, tries to kick down one of the boards in the wall, but he can't get out. And as he gets increasingly desperate, suddenly he notices the hole in the seat of the outhouse. And he deliberates just for a moment, and then he plugs his nose and jumps down, climbs out from the slime under the outhouse, and runs to see his hero. He's covered head to toe, of course, in this foul brown sauce, filthy, and with a stench that makes people clear out of the way. And you know what? That is a much better picture of the dirtiness of sin. Our hearts, out of which we live our lives, our hearts are immersed in the worst kind of vile and reeking filth. And worse than that, it is filth that cannot be washed off. This is the very heart of which Jesus said, what we've just read, but what comes out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles or pollutes a person. For out of the heart comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Foul deeds grow out of a foul heart. And so the human heart cannot help but defile a person. From the root of sin comes the fruit of sin. This is obviously a problem for us. For we were made for God. We need God. Our souls desperately yearn for God. Nothing matters more than God's approval. And yet, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's not us. In the history of Israel, when God was showing them what he was like and what it looked like for them to be his people, there was a major obstacle. God was perfectly holy. People were utterly polluted by sin. This week I walked out the church door and the sun was shining on the white snow at such an angle that it made it blindingly brilliant. I had to shield my eyes, I had to squint just to be able to see. And very soon after that, I drove on roads that had this runny, dark brown sugar-ish slush. And such is the difference between God's heart and ours. As God was teaching the people of Israel what it meant for them to be his people and to be in relationship with him, there was this insurmountable obstacle of how could a sinful people possibly interact with a holy God. 
Now, God made a provision for them that would allow a single person, a single representative of the people, and this was the high priest, to enter God's holy place, and that only once a year, to intercede for the people by offering a sacrifice for the sins of the people and for himself. And though the people didn't know this at the time, this provision arose sheerly out of God's grace and was based on or pointed toward a future act of God's grace that would validate the intercession and the cleansing for the sin of the people. And on this one day every year, called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the high priest would begin his sacred activities of the day by exchanging his regular clothes for pure linen. And this would represent the fact that it would represent purity, putting on robes of righteousness, as it were. And thus the, the priest would visually depict before the people the the purity, the righteousness, the, the cleanness of the heart that was necessary to stand before God. This is what the Bible says. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash about his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body with water and then shall put them on. And then after the sacrifices of the day, he would then take his blood-stained garments off, wash again, and put on his regular priestly garments. And this time of being in the very presence of God was bookended by these rituals of cleansing. And in between, only the blood of the sacrifice, the blood that God accepted as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, that was the only thing that got onto these robes. Only righteousness can stand before God, only the one who has a pure heart. Like I said, that is not us. Could somebody climb out from under the pit of an outhouse and then the next moment be welcomed into the presence of the queen? The Bible gives us some symbols that point to the perfect righteousness of God both the Father and of Jesus Christ, the Son, and even just of heaven itself. Here are some descriptions of God's purity. Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, is described as his clothing white as snow and the hair of his head pure like wool. Similar description of Jesus in John's Revelation, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And in Matthew 17, Peter and James and John are on the top of the mountain with Jesus, and they see before them Jesus transfigured in all his glory. And we get this description. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. These are pictures of the purity, the absolute purity of God in Christ. Even angels are sometimes described as being robed in white, participating, as it were, in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of heaven, kind of in the same way that a full moon, white, reflects the brilliant light of the sun. And if this is God, the sun, perfect purity, perfect whiteness, blindingly so, if this is God, how could we possibly... Stand before him. 
Not that we don't try. We are aware, I think, most people, of the stain of sin. We try various things to deal with it. We try to clean it up, first of all. In keeping our house, my wife and I share the load. And for as long as we've been married, 13 and a half years, I consciously set aside a couple hours every year just to ease her burden. And when we're cleaning the house, Cara and I have different values. I like things tidy. Cara likes things clean. I can put things in order, everything in its place, but it isn't clean. It just gives the illusion of clean, but it's not clean. Have you ever cleaned a window until you thought it was spotless? And then had the light come around to the other side of the house. And how clean did the window look then? So if we can't get clean by trying, then we try to hide or disguise our uncleanness. I took a book out of the library a couple of weeks ago, my kids did. And it's Ripley's Believe It or Not, the 2013 edition. And there's a section in there devoted to art and to artists. And some of it is wonderful. But some people make art out of fingernail clippings, belly button lint, or vacuum cleaner dust. Wait, gets better. Daniel Ortega outdoes them all. He makes memorial ash work. Paintings created from the ashes of beloved pets. And now I quote, The tasteful tributes are full of color and decorated with jewels and stained glass, although others also incorporate horse manure and goat pellets. But filth disguised is still filth. Yes, I know. So if our trying to clean ourselves fails and our disguises don't work, then we have no other choice then but to redefine pure. And so by pure, we mean relatively pure compared to other things. There's a soap that boasts it is 99 and 44 44 one hundredths percent pure. Now what do we call something that is 99.44% pure? There's a word for it. Impure. Pure, by definition, by definition, is something absolutely and perfectly clean. There is no other substance, no, no other thing present in it. So whatever the 0.56% of the material in this soap, whatever it is, it makes the soap impure. But 99.4% doesn't even really matter to us. We can't even see that from where we're standing. Compared with God's perfection, sin has so covered and permeated us that our very best is dirty. Isaiah was exactly right when he said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy rags, others translate it, We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, while considering the natures of our hearts, we cannot love very well. We need help. David was aware of the uncleanness of his own heart when he acknowledged his from-birth sinfulness. And he prayed this in Psalm 51, Wash me 
thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In other words, only you can cleanse me. If I'm going to have a pure heart, you have got to do it. Now, thankfully, this is, was and is exactly God's intent. In every framework of the gospel that we have considered so far, the gospel or the good news is that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is true here as well. Only God can and does purify us or cleanse us. God pulls us out from under the outhouse and makes us stand unashamed before him. God gave us clues in the Old Testament that this is exactly what he would do. I'm going to read some passages for you now. Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet receives God's word concerning Israel, which in the Old Testament is the picture of the church of Jesus Christ. And in speaking of Israel's restoration from captivity, God first says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And how will God do this? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all of your uncleannesses. There's a great picture in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. And in his vision, Zechariah sees the high priest, whose name is Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord. But instead of wearing the clean garments of the high priest, he is clothed in filthy garments. And Satan is standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. Look at him, your high priest. This is the one who's supposed to offer sacrifices and intercede for your people. He's filthy himself. But the Lord immediately shuts him down. And now I quote, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah, said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And in all of this, you notice, Joshua is passive. The filthy garments are removed for him. Pure vestments are put on him. 
God takes away his sin. God has him clothed in purity because only God can do that. And only God can do that for us. And he has. That's what the gospel is for us. God has done for us through Jesus Christ what we could not do for ourselves. He has made our hearts clean before him. And so we ask the questions that we've asked every week. How did he accomplish this? And we give the same answer that we've given every week. By the death and by the resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, contrasting the ultimately inadequate sacrifice of the priest's yearly activities, which only served to make the people sort of outwardly, visibly pure, but did nothing for the heart, with the death of Jesus, the book of Hebrews says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God. And then the book of Revelation. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the new holy garments. The people of God have had their filthy garments stripped off and are reclothed in the robes of righteousness that are made pure by the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Calvary. Now, How is this righteousness appropriated? Not by our righteousness, not by our purity. We have none. There's only one way to obtain this righteousness, and that is by faith. As the early Jerusalem church understood that God had made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And faith is simply our recognizing the filth of our hearts and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and saying, create in me a clean heart, cast me not away from your presence. And to hear God say, yes, and you know what? I have already prepared your clothing. You are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And if you have that, then you are fine. You're secure in God's sight. If you have not thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Christ, then you need to. Christ is literally your only hope. 
So what are we to do then with this glorious truth? What are its implications for how we live and think? Well, for starters, of course, obviously in all the time, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, we can quit trying to earn this white robe of righteousness even after the fact. Quit trying to prove to ourselves that we have contributed at least something to our righteousness. We didn't. We couldn't clean our own hearts up. We can stop trying to make people think that we've got our act together, somehow disguising our sins. We can't redefine purity in such a way as to say, well, I'm not so bad. We just say, thank you. Thank you. I love your mercy. I love your amazing grace. That is our first response. And second, be confident in that grace. Or, to frame it negatively, don't be afraid of God. Don't worry that you're not clean enough. Don't try to complete what God has done. He has done it all, and for goodness sake, don't think that if you commit a sin that all of God's work is undone. As if the mighty work of God and the very death of eternal perfect Jesus and his resurrection can be knocked down by a flick of your sinful finger. Don't worry about whether you are good enough. Jesus is good enough. And God applies Jesus' good enoughness to you and, in fact, is busy right now conforming you to the image of Jesus. And at the end of the day, God, does do, God doesn't just clean up your hearts in a very real sense. He forms Jesus' own heart in you. So don't be afraid that God is still angry with you or keeping his distance until he's made sure that you've been good the whole time. God, who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for you, will not now withhold his acceptance and his love. So don't be afraid. And thirdly, live a life of purity. It may sound odd to have a call for purity after everything that I've just said to this point, but the New Testament emphasizes that grace always has an ethical component. That is, when we are amazed by the action of God on our behalf, the Word of God always knows and reminds us to know that life is lived differently in God's grace than it was outside of God's grace. Filthy hearts produce different fruit than cleansed hearts do. Paul tells Pastor Timothy to set an example in speech, in love, in faith, in purity. Ephesians 4, I urge you then to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. There is a major difference, however, in how the Bible treats this expected purity, and it's this. We don't work toward purity any more than we clean up to take a bath, but we work from a place of purity. We don't live rightly in order to earn God's acceptance. We live rightly because God has accepted us. We don't live in order to attain a God-approved life. We live rightly because of the God-approved life that he has already given us. See, when we lived sinfully, we lived 
We lived out who we are. From a defiled heart come defiled words and thoughts and actions. But as God has cleansed us by the blood of the crucified Jesus, now if we live sinfully, we are doing things counter to who we are. In a sense, when we sin, we are not being who we really are. We're not called to work towards purity, but to work from it. We don't work hard to become pure. We live intentionally as a people who have become pure. I didn't live like a parent in order to become one, but I lived like a parent when I became one. And the Bible lays out pretty clearly the difference between an impure life and a pure one. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. This is pretty major stuff. But then he adds the everyday stuff. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions, envy. Any one of you ever been envious? Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So in which of these works of the flesh are you now reminded that this has no place in your heart anymore? And which of these fruit of the Spirit are you reminded that this seed needs to be more intentionally cultivated, given more sun, given more water? Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation. And the idea is that of working the soil, taking what's just underneath and bringing it to the surface. Take your salvation, your cleansing, which is already there in Christ, which only God could do, And work it out. Make it visible by living a life of purity. This is gospel. That God has taken a filthy heart, robing us then in the righteousness of Christ, unblemished and perfect righteousness. And this gospel changes who we are. And therefore, it must by necessity change how we live. Everyone lives from who they are. By their fruit, you will know them. But in awe of God's cleansing of us, in confidence of his acceptance of us because he has made us acceptable, let us live our new lives, lives that reflect and flow from this new life and this new heart that God is forming in us. Let us live in purity, and hopefully you're thinking, even in these moments, what that means to look like for you, living out the reality of the grace of God. Let us pray as we close.